not all of you, but John was the second ever RUF campus minister at the University of Tennessee. Him and his family moved here in 1996 when some, y'all know Sarah Stone, I'm sure many of y'all know Sarah Stone, she was five months old, I just found out when they moved here, and uh, he's worked for RUF for 25 years, he's currently one of the pastors at Redeemer, and uh, he's a good friend of mine, the... Uh, his, his wife Marissa is back there. You can give a shout out to Miss Marissa, as we as we all refer to her. The only other time I introduced John was at a winter conference. Do you remember this? This is maybe two, three years ago. It wasn't that long ago? Maybe just, just, two. Maybe just two. two years last ago. Year. It was like last yeah. year. And last I introduced. <laughs> this is last year. <laughs> okay, it was last year. And I introduced him as the guy that met. Lynn Manuel Miranda on the plane. Mm, yeah. Do you remember this? And 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 Lynn Manuel was no. He was working on a song called um, "I'm uh, I'm Not Do Not Throw Away My Your Chance." <laughs> <laughs> and I said Stone came up with the idea of like, no, you should change it to "I'm Not Throwing Away My Shot." And and so I, in front of this whole audience, I gave him credit for that line. Some of our students were like. Oh my God! <laughs> and then he got up there and was like, "All oh, of that's a lie." Everyone hated me. But anyway, give it up for John Stone, good friend. And and it's turned on. You're, you said turned on. Yep. So hey, it's great to be with y'all tonight. And um, I'm gonna I'm not gonna do the the Levitical passage on mildew, even though I did spend a week at Laguna Beach Mildew Christian Retreat Center. Um, I'm going to be in Matthew chapter 16. If you have a device and you want to look, you can do that, or you can just listen. You, you, uh, If you grew up in the church, which many of you may have, or you've been around a church, you, you'll know this passage. This is an exchange between Peter and Jesus, uh, when really Jesus is giving Peter his name. And he's saying something pretty impressive here. And Tonight I want you to think about names, uh, your own name, and the names other people give you. Um, but sort of in the middle of, as we work through this passage, or we won't really work through the passage as much. I, I want you to really just sort of begin to think about the names you call yourself, how you think about yourself. So this is Matthew 16, uh, verses 13 through 20. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, so Jesus is naming him. I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone 
that he was the Messiah. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray and ask God to teach us his word. Lord, open our eyes and our minds and our hearts to your word, and I pray that um, this exchange between you, Jesus, and Peter, who is there with you, that this exchange would help us to think deeply and more fully about our own self-definitions about the way we think about ourselves, the way we let others name us, and that we would begin to have liberty and freedom from those definitions and would instead accept your definition of us, even as we'll see tonight with Peter, in spite of the evidence. And we pray this to Jesus for your namesake. Amen. Uh, You probably know this about Matt, and you may not know this about me, but Matt and I are involved in a cult workout group called F3, so some of you may know what F3 is. But F3 is a, um, it's basically a midlife crisis management center for 45-year-old men. And um, if, if, I would invite the women to come, but it's for men only because it's like a 1950s nightmare. But uh, <laughs> guys, if you want to get up at 5.30 and run around with people and do silly stuff, you're welcome. But uh, one of the ceremonies, if you come to F3, is that you receive a name the first time you work out. And you receive a name because it's a cult, and because naming someone is um, ha- has lots of connotations. It's a sign of acceptance. Um, it is a sign of affection. It's actually, I think if we're honest, sometimes a sign of ownership. Like all of you have had somebody, a teacher or a coach, give you a nickname that you didn't like. And you really begin to insist that that nickname not be used because you recognize there's a power exchange there. Um, And often when you get in places like with with roommates who really get along well, now that's not a lot of people, when you get in a situation with roommates who really get along well, you realize that they've all given each other these names or kind of terms of endearment. And we have here, or terms of shame, um, for for boys um, that we would never mention in front of girls because they're crude and bad, but yeah, we have those. But here we have Jesus deciding to give Peter a name, and basically gives him the name Rock. And he says, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Um, I don't want to give away all the passage. What's interesting about him choosing to name Peter here is, Peter is going to fail pretty miserably after this naming. I mean, really fail. And what I want us to consider tonight is, metaphorically, what is your name, and where it came from, and how you can change it. So this is kind of, what what you see here is what your name is, where it came from, and how you change it is what goes on with Peter here. And I want to use Peter's life here with Jesus to help you think about it. So what do I mean, what is your name? I mean, you all plot your birth certificates, you have a name. Maybe your parents call you by your middle name. Um, but that's not exactly what I'm asking. I'm asking tonight, what, is, what are the names that you call yourself in your head and your heart that you would not reveal to anybody else? And these names could have come from many places. They could have come from your family. They could come from teachers. Uh, they could come from a coach who cut you from JV basketball or cut you from a dance squad or from a chess club. Um, it can come from the playground. Um, it can come out of your parents' divorce. 
But there are a million ways that names get attached to us, and those names are how we think about ourselves. You, you actually see the importance of this idea in the Psalms, especially the Psalms of Ascent that Israel uses to worship. Because as they go to worship, they sing over and over about the names of God. And they sing those songs over and over, those psalms, even as you recognize that they sing them not just on the way to Jerusalem, but sometimes in Babylon. Sometimes they go to Jerusalem with their child having died, or their house having burned, or the pestilence having gotten them, or the enemies having overrun them. They are constantly trying to sing and and, and put inside their heads the name, really, of God, of Yahweh. And yet, if we're honest with ourselves, if you can be honest with yourself tonight, you have a ton of names in your head, words, phrases, that haunt you. Um, So I experienced this most vividly one time when Marissa and I were at a conference at Laguna Beach Christian Retreat Center called RYM. If you've never heard it, it's fine. It's a a high school conference. And... um, a woman who was teaching a seminar for girls only, specifically for middle school girls, had passed out some cards to the middle school girls. And one of the questions that she asked them was, tell me how you feel about yourself. And she was reading through those cards, and she began to weep uncontrollably. And I don't remember if Marissa and I read them or if she read them out loud to us, but as she began to read what these girls in middle school thought about themselves, it was overwhelming. I said, please don't read us anymore. It was, it was so dark and so confusing. I, I understand that they thought that, but so confusing that the thoughts could be so dark and ugly that you really couldn't hear it. Like, I mean, these were just seventh grade girls or boys like you, and they used the words, I mean, I'm even uncomfortable, but um, I'm worthless, I'm useless. I'm obese, I'm hated, my parents wish I had never been born, my friends hate me. Um, they had been willing to be honest about this because they didn't put their names on them. And it, it makes me realize, and I know you realize, that in so many ways, these are all of our thoughts. That we have these thoughts about ourselves that we're absolutely failures. And yet, it's interesting What the scriptures would like you to see is that God would like you to have a different name. As we do a little fun sort of exegesis or Bible study here, you think about Peter. Peter gets the name Rock, and Jesus says crazy powerful things about him. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you're the Rock. I tell you that you're the Rock. I'm naming you the Rock. And I'll build my church on you. And the gates of hell will not overcome it. <clears throat> and four chapters later, he's in a courtyard, cold. Jesus is on trial. And a 14-year-old girl backs him down and shames him. And he cusses God. And then he ends up, post the resurrection with Jesus, confused about what he should think about the disciple John. And then they're hiding in an upper room as the Holy Spirit is given to the church in Acts 2. So this man was given this name by God, and yet he didn't want to live by it. He didn't really want to take that name. God didn't 
God wouldn't allow him not to live by it. That's why he gives him the Holy Spirit. But I want you to enter into this idea that God wants to give you a name and that you really don't want that name. Or I might say to you more honestly, you're scared of that name. You're scared to believe that name is true. You're scared to believe that the words God is speaking to you, the actions God has taken towards you, can be true for you. So instead of you're loved, you feel hated. And if you can, if you can just give me one last moment of honesty, a lot of times you're working hard to prove the negative name. You would rather self-destruct than to accept that you're loved. You'd rather prove that you're unworthy than show that God can use you. You have a name... And you will not be able to let Jesus rename you until you admit you do. I'm going to take one step further. I'm going to step into it just a little bit further. Where did your name come from? It's a very interesting question. What's the source of your refrain? What is the voice that dominates you and why? Was it your dad's voice when he said, You're an idiot. Why can't you get anything right? I still cannot drive in a car with my dad because he sits in the seat and screams about my driving. He still treats me like a four-year-old. I'm 52, and my dad... I have a good dad. Don't I did all the hard work of counseling here that you'll do in the future. But my dad wants to name me child, right? My mom wants to name me loud. Um, my teachers named me... Failure of spelling. They were right about that. <laughs> uh, but we all have names. We have coaches who've named us. Friends who've named us. Abusers who've named us. Bosses who've named us. Neighbors who've named us. Roommates who've named us. They come from all over. I'll tell you, the strangest name I have is Hater of Dinner. And my wife will laugh at this. But as Marissa and I got married and began to have children, my wife very rightly wanted to do very normal thing, and just have dinner at the table in the dining room or kitchen. You know, just what y'all did with your family. It's just called evening dinner. And I became very restless against that dinner. And I couldn't, I don't know why. And it began to be, understandably for my wife, a source of tension. Like, she would cook dinner, and I would either eat too quickly, or, more likely, I would pick up and go, let's go sit on the floor in the den, and not sit at the table. Now we can debate the merits of the table versus the den. I'm not sure that was the biggest sin. But there was clearly something wrong with me about dinner. And this is insane, right? It, I didn't understand what was wrong with dinner until about, probably about eight years ago. I went home without my family for the first time, without my wife and children, to see my parents. I don't know why I did but when we sat down at the dinner table, like I had this massive flashback. This is not deep and dark. You can like share this on the internet. And I can remember sitting there, and my mom has essentially what you would call hyper ADD. So hyper ADD means you do only one thing at a time. Um, I mean, and that's all they can do. Like my mom could cook the meat or the vegetable. So my whole life, like, either the meat was done and the vegetable was frozen, or the vegetable was done and the meat was frozen. You, you'll choose frozen cooked meat over, right? But the phone would ring. 
So my mom was on a bunch of committees. My mom was a very active woman, kind of a hero in our little small town. A great woman, a great mom. Phone rings, she would pick it up and she would freeze. I've watched my mom stand in a bunch of rooms, un- having a great conversation. She can't walk. When this, she finally had to stop using a cell phone in the car, she would just pull over or she would stop on the road to talk. She would only do one thing at a time. So here's what would happen. My mom would answer the phone. My father had grown up in a setting where dinner was everything on a farm. They couldn't eat breakfast, and so dinner was everything. She would start talking. My dad had a little bit of an attitude about the church. He would begin to yell at my wife, my mom, Amelia, you've got to eat dinner. This is cold. And he would bang his glass because he want more tea, which is a whole other discussion. <laughs> My brother and I, and my brother for a number of years only appears as a cloud in my memories, which is a whole nother like deep problematic issue. He's a cloud. And we would eat because, because it was, my dad's pretty, not deep. I had good parents, but like this is the moment that every night at dinner, kind of all Hades would break loose. And we would be, so if you ever eat with my brother and I, it's clink. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> like, still, because like you just had to get out of there. And my dad's tense, and my mom's standing there, and the bread was always burned. And so, for me, unbeknownst to me, see a whole, like a whole way of living around dinner developed that I was unaware of. And when I really began to in, sitting there that night, my brother said something like don't you hope the phone doesn't ring? And like, literally it was like PTSD, like the Vietnam guy, like people are being shot, they're dying. Like, ah! I had this whole like series of movies in my head. And I was like, oh, and I did better. Not, I did a lot, like, I was like, oh, we can sit here. We can eat slowly. We can talk. <laughs> and interesting enough, probably when we went into the den, like I was better at dinner in the den. It just made my wife so sad that she had to talk to a counselor about that. But that's not the discussion. <laughs> And that's a funny, real story. It's real. I can feel myself get anxious when you put food in front of me. So if that little event of my mom answering a phone to serve Jesus on a church committee and my dad hollering because his mother shamed him about dinner traumatized me, then the more serious stuff in your life is a big deal. Like It was a big deal that Peter was going to betray Jesus and it was going to impact him. But what Jesus is saying to him before he falls, right? Notice when he names him, before he falls. He says, Peter, I've already decided you're the rock. So, Jesus is saying, you don't get to name yourself. I name you. You don't, when you come to F3, don't suggest a name, we will not only not choose that, we'll decide what the opposite of that is and double it down. Like, you don't get to name yourself. But that's sort of the struggle we're in with Jesus. I'm not going to let Him speak words over me because Jesus is saying, I want to give you a new name. And I get to decide what that name is. Now, in this passage, we see hints of it. He says, I tell you that you're Peter. And on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome you. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you lose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he ordered his disciples not to tell him that he was the Messiah. 
The imagery here can be confusing. Don't get too lost on the binding and the keys. It's, it's worth the study. Jesus being simpler. Jesus is saying, you're my brothers. You're my brothers. The defining characteristic of your life is that you're now my sibling. And in an Old Testament context, and even in normal context today, like you'll do anything for your brother. Like you can beat your brother up. You can speak poorly about your brother. But somebody else says the same thing you said, and you'll knock your teeth out. Because they're your brother. And Jesus is saying, Peter, no matter what you do, it's my name that matters. It's not your name. Because you're going to fail miserably. It's going to be bad, Peter. But even though it's bad, I'm going to build my church in and through you. See, he's telling us that we get a new name when we accept that it's God who decides how we relate to Him and not we who decide how to relate to Him. He is the one who has loved us. I had the privilege of speaking on justification last week. He's the one who came after us. He's the one who laid His life down. He exchanged His life for ours. Not only did He take on our sin, He gave us His good works. So that as I stand here tonight, no matter what I did today, I fed the 10,000. I walked on the water. I raised Lazarus from the dead. I did that in Christ. Because it is Christ defining who I am and not me defining who I am. I'm believing that God's name for me is the right name. I'm believing that what God has said about me, what God is doing towards me is true. So let's just stop for a moment. Y'all aren't big enough crowd for me to make this big assumption like if it was like 100 of you. But there's a whole group of Christians that are interesting to me, and they'll say this, and and I'm not in any sense mocking them, it's interesting. They'll they'll be very zealous in a right way. Um, They'll long in a right way for others to know the gospel. And whenever their friends are hurting or failing, they're the first person to say, God loves you. God can forgive you. This isn't the last defining characteristic of your life. But for this person, what they most often think about themselves is, that's true for everybody else except me. It's true for everybody. I know, like you'll see people, if you're this person, who do way worse stuff than you did. Even you're like, yeah, that's pretty bad. Like me, this is going to cause some trouble. But you'll still step in because you know the gospel's true and you'll say, Jesus can forgive this. Jesus loves you. Jesus will walk with you in this. The church will gather around you. But you do something much more minor and you're like, but it's not true for me. It's not true for me. Why? Why is His name good enough for others, but it's not good enough for you? Why is His name powerful enough for others, but not powerful enough for you? Why is it that you can't let Him name you the rock even when you're going to betray Him deeply? Some of you have heard this story, but it's worth using tonight because it's just the best story in the history of the world. Um, well, I've got two versions. We can do the UT version since the UT version matters to y'all. Um, Scott Rabinall was a vice president at UT a few years ago, and then Texas offered him a ton of money. So now he's a vice president at Texas. And Scott Rabinall, he's a good man, went to Redeemer Church. 
He took um, Les Newsom out to a football game one time, and we were sitting somewhere in the stand in one of those boxes, which were great. And um, Les leaned over to him and said, um, "Is there any way we can go on the field like during the game before or after?" And Scott said, "Oh yeah, no, that's no problem." And he just handed us these two badges. And we read the badge, and it said, all access, no restrictions. That's what it said. And it said, you know, he wrote John Stone on it, Les Newsome on it. And I'm with Les on this. We walked over, we got in the elevator. And when the door closed, Les said, certainly this doesn't mean we can go anywhere. And I said, I, I think it means we can go anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so... We have this experience, like, he's Les Newsome, he went to the University of Memphis, he went to ECA, what did he go to in Memphis, honey? He went to one of those Christian schools in Memphis, I'm not, I just don't remember the name. ECS. He went to ECS. Um, he is a very particular man, uh, but he's not a very powerful University of Tennessee alumnus. I went to Clemson University and have no particular affection or disaffection for the University of Tennessee, so we don't belong, I mean, we just don't belong. And so we go down to the field, and there's these really nice officers, and we walk up, and we're just like, they're like, hey, come on through. Now, recognize if if I don't have the little badge, right, like it's, hey, you can't come in here. Great. So we go stand on the sidelines, and there are these guards, like, we're on the sidelines with reporters and a few other people, and apparently important people, and I'm like hey, Les, I think we can sit on the bench. He's like, there's no way we can sit on the bench. <laughs> Come on through. <laughs> and they, they, they're like, now, you can't, like, get in the huddles. Again, I get it. Like, you can't, like, you know, sit on the actual bench with players using But So then the ultimate test came because at halftime, when the team ran off the field, I was like, Les, I think there's some good stuff in there. Like, I meant, and he he understood like food and drink for like millionaire alumnus. And we, you know, we start walking back there, and the, the security's increasingly difficult. So, and but every time, yes, 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 yes. And then it's time for the ultimate test. Can we go in the locker room? Yes. <laughs> so we stood there at halftime and watched Butch Jones make a speech. And the players are there, and they've all got their you know shoulder pads off, and some of them are having to change because their pants are ripped. And I'd like you to go home with this memory of the story, right? Because the truth about that story is, no one that day ever made reference to me or less. We really stood under the name of basically Scott Ravenall. I mean, it, it said, all access pass, no restrictions. And for that day, I was not John Stone, right? I was all access pass, no restrictions. Which is, if you ever get one of these, like, go for it. Go for it earlier than we did. We should have been all up in there eating the fried chicken. And <laughs> we should have explored the whole stadium. And we, but we got into the Holy of Holies. We got to the halftime speech. We used the bathroom in the back of the locker room. It's our claim to fame, right? <laughs> you know... The gospel, or not even to use a word that can confuse us, how about this? What Jesus did in coming for you and in dying for you and giving his life for you and then in giving you his good works, he was doing something so powerful 
that you're not allowed to reference yourself. He's giving you the name. We can use a lot. Justified. United to Christ. Sanctified. Holy. Saint. My brother. My friend. My child. He's putting that name on you. And no one is allowed to deny it. But especially you. Especially you. And especially your demons are not allowed to deny that it is Jesus that names us. It's Jesus who said to you, and I call you friend. And the gates of hell cannot prevail against that, even your own gates. So I would encourage you as the summer comes along and starts to remember tonight who named you. And if you've never allowed Jesus to name you, to step into His naming you. Let me pray for us. We pray, Father, that You would you would really help us enter into the story about a man who was full of, of mistakes and sin and who even in, in probably the most crucial moment of his life, certainly your most crucial moment, he denied knowing you. He cursed and said he'd never been with you. And yet, you didn't change your name for him. He was Peter the Rock. And you built the church on him. And the gospel, the good news about you went forth because of him. And what you want for him, you want for us. You see it all over the scriptures, in this story and others. So teach us again about what our real name is in you. It's loved, accepted, forgiven. It's free. And give us give us the grace, the mercy, the power of the Spirit to put that name on. We pray this, Jesus, for your name's sake.